Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 110 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. It's your old pal Patch Hicks here in the Podcast Express. I'm without my normal partner in crime, Aaron, who is taking a break to recover from his ongoing SIF coverage. Instead, ready to fight the powers of evil and darkness is none other than Francisco Ruiz from the Retro Rewind Podcast. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Indeed, I'm here. Crap Patch. No host Crap Patch. You almost had it. You almost I know. Had it. That's, that's okay. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you could join us this week. This is definitely an episode that Aaron was not upset about skipping. I just <laughs> So if you didn't know already, we are going to be talking about the 1986 cult classic Big Trouble in Little China, directed by the not-so-subtle John Carpenter. And who better to join me than someone well-versed in the movies of yesteryear? Yeah, when is he going to be on the show? That guy well-versed oh oh me yes of course well-versed I am. and also welcome francisco to the show. <laughs> <laughs> well before we get into our full-on review of this movie a couple of announcements one as always we give our obligatory spoiler alert so pop this movie in before coming back to join the discussion with us secondly we'd like to give a shout out to one of the other podcasts that we both enjoy listening to have you ever watched a movie or TV show with your friends and noticed all kinds of symbolism, allegory, and Christian themes only to have your friends shrug it off? Well, maybe you need some new friends, but more likely, you need Popcorn Theology. I'm Richard. And I'm David. And we're the hosts of Popcorn Theology, a podcast for movie lovers and theology nerds. Each week, we dive into a different movie, TV show, or other topic and explore them from a biblical worldview. Check us out on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher or at PopcornTheology.com. And remember, you are not a mindless consumer. Okay, so... It's review time. And as we always like to do, we like to start the conversation with a one-word takeaway. Always? You didn't start the podcast with this, so it's not always. This is true. <laughs> but, sorry, now for, for a good chunk of our last several episodes. Thank you. I appreciate your accuracy. We've been incorporating a one-word takeaway. And so, Francisco, why don't you start us off with your one-word takeaway? Well, as you can probably tell by, if you've listened to me at all, I'm kind of a zany guy, and that's pretty much my one-word takeaway is that Big Trouble in Little China was a zany film. Though it may be in part to my unfamiliarity with Chinese myth, uh, the assortment of characters, both good and evil, as well as their actions as they clash, just range from strange to absurd, and all the while, it's really amusing to me and really cool, so that's why call this movie big trouble in little china a zany movie that is probably not far from my one word takeaway i picked outrageous from my, oh yeah yeah yeah. when i first popped this movie and my wife was she was like that sounds like fun i remember seeing that when i was younger fantastic and, my wife <laughs> well the response would have probably been the same because when we finished the movie she looked at me and she goes that was so stupid <laughs> <laughs> And and she's right. I mean, there is a lot of just craziness going on in there. Zany is a great word to, to sum up what John Carpenter probably put in this whole film. But I picked Outrageous. And the reason why is because 
I couldn't say over the top because that's three words. But <laughs> that was the word that I was really thinking about as I was walking through this film. And from the opening shot of Kurt Russell's character, Jack Burton, channeling that inner John Wayne, talking on that CB while scarfing down a, that gas station sub sandwich or whatever it was. It's a hoagie. I mean, it's a hoagie, yeah. So we knew we were in for a hilarious ride. And there's nothing about this movie that isn't over the top. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I like about it. It gives you the ability to kind of forgive maybe other parts that don't feel quite normal because there's nothing really normal about Big Trouble in Little China. This is Carpenter's way of setting us up for a comedy through and through. And then he puts it against this backdrop of what I would consider a little tribute to martial arts B-movies. That's so interesting that you consider I know it's under comedy and like the genres, but for me, it's not super overly comedic. It's much more of an adventure story with comedic elements, but maybe we can discuss that as we go. Yeah, I mean, I can agree with that statement, but I would not put it in the same category as something like Indiana Jones, which is, to me, an adventure story with comedy. And I think this is more campy. I guess it would probably be more campy adventure. Well, I wanted to open up the conversation by talking about John Carpenter as a director. Now, Mm -hmm. personally, I don't have a lot of familiarity with his stuff. I also had a chance to watch his interpretation of The Thing based on the story. You guys covered that in our previous episode, right? We did back in October, and I was absent for that episode, which I, I I was accused of skipping out. I think I was sick or something. I can't. Yeah, likely story. I did have a connecting point, and I. Think I had a one more takeaway? No, we didn't do those yet. So I definitely had some inputs there, and Aaron represented me pretty well. <laughs> but there is proof that I watched the movie because I have a connecting point. <laughs> but really, these are the only two major movies that I've been exposed to when it comes to John Carpenter, mm-hmm. and I see a lot of similarities. Now, that's not a wide palette to kind of say, oh, yeah, I know John Carpenter. This is his style. What I've seen is, oh, yeah, he uses these things in this one, and he also uses it in that one. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, Francisco, does Big Trouble live up to the John Carpenter-esque style? Does it feel like a film that is innately his? Or, or, or what's your take on that? I'd say it definitely, um, it's def- it definitely is a, uh, has a lot of the same stylistic elements he puts in his movies. Like, uh, well, Kurt Russell is definitely a, a commonality in a lot of his films. Uh, a darkness and the types of subject matter he wants to explore in these films, I think, is also in this. But this is also kind of a change than some of his other work, where this this movie's a lot more fun than things like The Thing or Escape from New York or Assault on Precinct 13. And it's not as uh, cynical as something like They Live. It's almost... It is sort of out of place if you... If you're just like watching all his movies, it does seem like sort of the black sheep of them, I suppose, in a way, just because it's the most lighthearted. But I recently learned that he had his first child prior to making this movie. And he had talked in an interview I was watching that that really opened up him as a filmmaker and made him see like the world through his child's eyes. That's how he expressed it. So with that in mind, I'm like, oh, that's why this is so much more like open-minded and freer and willing to go against the norms of your traditional storytelling. So do you feel like it was, this is more of an optimistic ambition of storytelling for him compared to his other works? 
Oh, totally. Totally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, something like the thing, as you remember, it's, uh, he, he even has something called the apocalypse trilogy, which isn't, there are only a trilogy in the sense that it's about the end of the world. I think the thing is one Prince of darkness is another, I forget what the third one is, but yeah, a lot of his movies, they are much more darker in tone and they can end ambiguously or very, um, pessimistically. It's definitely earned the title of cult classic. This isn't just one of Carpenter's lesser popular movies. Uh, it's just a critically panned movie in general. And mm-hmm. I wanted to bring up one of Roger Ebert's quotes about the movie. He says, special effects don't mean much unless we care about the characters who are surrounded by them. And in this movie, the characters often seem to exist only to fill up the foregrounds straight out of the era of Charlie Chan and Fu Manchu with no apologies and all of the usual stereotypes. So Francisco, what do you take away from that quote besides the obvious that Roger Ebert didn't really care for this movie? Do you agree with what he said? And does that take away from your movie experience with Big Trouble? First off, it doesn't take away from my experience. I can see where he's coming from. Absolutely. Uh, but I do not agree with him because I think in this case, the, the characters are like, they're kind of paper thin. They're very, very archetypal and don't have a lot of depth. But I, I think each character has a lot of heart to them, whether it's a two-dimensional heart or a three-dimensional heart. Uh, I, I really like that who the characters are. And I think it actually, the movie itself does a lot more to just yeah build out this world that all these like we we talked about it, it is outrageous because all these weird things happen and there's these creatures that you don't really have a foothold in and uh you don't know if it's from chinese mythology or just something fabricated of john carpenter and his his team's mind but you don't know where things are coming from it's kind of like a roller coaster ride you don't know what's going to happen and and it's fun to experience it as you're going along he i mean he can not like it or think that the characters are just there to fill space. But this isn't a character movie. It's not about the characters. It's about the ride. So, Well, and, and I'm with you. I think that, that Roger Ebert is spot on in his criticism, that there's mm-hmm. definitely a lack of character development. But Carpenter is not trying to do that. I think what he's doing is using characters to enhance that story. Mm-hmm. And the the two words that I think Ebert said that stand out to me are no apologies. The unapologetic nature that Carpenter has with this film to take us on this wild ride. And I think it's movies like this and like UHF, movies that don't necessarily give that emotional connection, Mm -hmm. that give it that cult flavor because they leave a lasting impression regardless, but for different reasons. I mean, it's no secret that I love movies that make me think about things and make me want to have discussions. And I don't see this as being like, well, this is my escape. This is my guilty pleasure. There's a place for movies like this. There's a place for campy zaniness. There's a, there's a place for absurdity. But Carpenter, I think, even with Big Trouble, sounds like he deviates a little bit from his normal palette to try to explore something else. I mean, there's still definitely Carpenter elements in there. I mean, every creature that I've seen in this was like, oh, yeah, I could have seen that creature in something else like the thing you know the other movie that i've seen him in and i think that there's some value in what the cult classic embodies can can i ask what for you uh defines a cult classic what makes a cult classic for patchicks 
Well, I would probably go with the public opinion and say it's a movie okay. that didn't get well received while it was in the theaters, mm. but home video really elevated it to kind of this underground popularity. Mm -hmm. And UHF is the prime example for me. It's one that I can continue to go back to because it's not a great movie. I mean, it's not one of those what? movies that you... Actually, I would totally agree with you up until we reviewed it on our podcast uh, recently. And I'm like, man, I, this, I had a lot of fun with this. But yeah, it's not a great movie. That's true. It's not and, like a Schindler's List by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not supposed to be. And yeah, and yeah. I don't think anybody's ever going to compare Big Trouble in Little China to Indiana Jones and whatever, you know, put insert title of movie here. But yeah. the fact is there are elements of a Western genre in this. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole screenplay was oh, written yeah. to be a Western exactly, originally. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's, it's, it's no coincidence that Jack Burton's character, that Kurt Russell is channeling that, that John Wayne character. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But I think for me, a cult classic is one that maybe doesn't get a lot of love initially, but really finds its footing upon kind of repeat viewings and, and puts yeah. itself in kind of a pantheon of, of appreciation for reasons that wouldn't normally be the case. Do you, do you think, I, I agree with you with that definition. That makes a lot of sense. I would only add that cable is also a part of it, at least growing up in the eighties and nineties. I think yeah, cable I can, yeah. adds to that. One, one thing that I, I would also be curious about is if it's a movie that you grow up on, if that's also something that makes it like, cause when you're younger, I think you're able, you definitely forgive a lot of the, Oh geez, why is this character so flat? Or why is, how, why is this story going from here to here? You're, you're much more of a oh, going along for the ride type of experiential person when you're a child, at least I was. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wonder if that also, uh, adds to that, yeah, probably a lot of people that watched this were kids and now they've just grown up with it and yeah, they've invested a lot of time in it and they enjoy it because it's like, oh yeah, this is my old friend, Big Trouble. Well, yeah, I mean, you guys talk about that on your show about how there's some value in nostalgia and I've had <laughs> several conversations with people online, offline about the power of uh, intertextuality and nostalgia and how that can inform a person's value of a, a movie or a book mm -hmm. or whatever. And something that I've concluded is that for me, because I can't speak for the world, at least not legally, and <laughs> I just <laughs> paperwork hasn't hasn't been verified yet. It's coming. Yeah, I have it. It's it's getting cleared. I look at the way that I see movies, the way that I kind of evaluate them, and if there's too much nostalgia, if there's too much of a callback to previous, but when I look at Big Trouble or I look at UHF or I look at other movies that I grew up with, I do kind of evaluate those things, but not necessarily from an intertextuality point of view because they're not calling back to something else. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's value in saying, I remember watching this on TBS on a Saturday afternoon and really having a good time with it. Or, yeah. you know, The Boy Who Could Fly or most of the movies that, that you guys covered in the, you know, the first 50 to uh, 100 episodes were – Movies that we I don't have 5,200 episodes, by the way. We don't have 5,200 <laughs> episodes. 52 to 800 episodes, I think, is what you're meaning to say. Yes. Your, your first 100 episodes <laughs> encompassed a lot of movies that I grew up on. And mm -hmm. so it's real interesting because I gravitate towards those because I remember them. Yeah. And I remembered certain things about them. And again, this is all connected to what you guys do on your show. Yeah. But I think Big Trouble... I appreciate the long ad. Thank you. 
<laughs> Check is in the mail, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but I think Big Trouble has value because of not just because of nostalgia, but because of the fact that it's coming from a director who I think is very intentional with 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 his films. Well, here's here's the impression I get. Like last year, to, to give a little uh, context to me as a John Carpenter fan, I I grew up. I was one of those kids that saw the thing on like uh, uh, cable or my dad recorded it and we watched it on VHS or something like that. And that was really my only exposure to him growing up. I, I never watched uh, Escape from uh, Escape from New York or Big Trouble in China. Pretty much it was just the thing. And I remember really liking that movie. I was like, this is really crazy and crazy special effects. And oh my gosh, who who's the thing? I, I think it, even, at, but even at that point, it was more of like the ride of it, even though it was my, way more of a, pessimistic slow burn movie for some reason last year i just was like you know what i want to explore a bit more i've i i want i want to see escape from new york who knows i may like it for the longest time i had this stigma against it because i thought la was way better than escape from from then la the city was way better than new york the city oh yeah here comes the hate mail i'm a sort of california boy anyway uh <laughs> And but I didn't want to watch Escape from L.A. because it's a sequel, and I had to start with the prequel. Anyway, I got I got over that. Watched Escape from New York. I'm like, wow, this is I really enjoyed that. It's this definitely a slow burn uh, action thriller. It's not not super actiony, but that's how I describe it. Uh, so it got me watching that. Then Assault on Precinct 13, Big Trouble in Little China. I think I I forget when I watched that again. But anyway, it got me really interested in him as a filmmaker. So. I started watching a bunch of YouTube interviews. Anyway, going back to what you were saying about his um, intentionality, I think definitely he's an intentional director. He, I think he's a, a very good director. I guess I'm not sure what level of credit I want to give him as a filmmaker. Well, there was a there was a another quote from a critic that stood on the other side of the fence when it came to a movie like this, and his name is Harlan Ellison. He says. Some of the funniest lines spoken by any actor this year to produce a cheerfully blathering live action cartoon that will give you release from the real pressures of your basically dreary lives. <laughs> so well, who are you, Harlan, to think my life is dreary? Sheesh. <laughs> so Harlan Ellison makes this really blunt statement, basically giving it sort of a weird kind of praise uh and and i think there's some truth in some of the things he's saying that it's definitely full of funny lines and it does feel like a live action cartoon because of just the absurdity of some of the things that are going on but i also think that big trouble has that western feel to it that western not not like western culture but like you know the cowboy western and stuff that i think a lot of people gravitate towards uh, did you pick up on that? Only sort of after the fact, after I did mm-hmm. some research on that, was supposed to be a Western, I could see where that came in. It wasn't something I rec- recognized on my first viewing or this viewing of it. But I do, I do want, I do agree with Harlan for the most part that this definitely feels like a live action cartoon in a lot of ways. Uh, that, though that got me thinking that and this kind of goes back to the whole growing up on movies uh, dialogue we were just having. But I I really feel like this, Big Trouble in Little China, is almost like an adult Goonies. 
like if you watch the Goonies and enjoyed that, you grew up a little bit, maybe a, little, a few years older from where we, whenever you saw Goonies, you'd really like this. It's it, it's because they're both like lots of adventure, lots of turns you don't expect, lots of I for instance, I really love the how in Goonies they keep going to different chambers of the cave. In this, the elevator sort of takes them to different different places or that that fireman's pole into the sewer, which is very odd. But <laughs> as they go to different levels of the underground, it's almost like, oh, this is a new saying. What's going to happen now when the door is open? Oh, my gosh. And so I think there's there's this appeal of this sense of adventure and sense of uh, wanting to see what happens next that I think is common to movies like Big Trouble in Little China and also movies like Goonies. And I think Goonies is way more respected, but I don't know – why it's so much more respected than this when they seem very similar as I think about them together. And I don't really think of the Goonies as a live action cartoon. Well, I would probably extend that quote by describing this as an adult cartoon, an adult, mm. as opposed to the Goonies, which a is more a more mature man- cartoon, not an adult cartoon. Right. Yes. It's with the air quotes, a more mature cartoon, a, a, yeah. a, a live action cartoon that is geared towards an older audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that what separates it from a movie like The Goonies in a positive or negative way is the fact that the characters in Big Trouble, with the exception of Jack Burton, mm-hmm. are memorable, but I don't know that – I don't know. I feel like they're not all relatable. Like I feel like you have a genuine protagonist, yeah. a genuine antagonist – and Jack Burton as a character, because of the number of lines that he has, because of the way he delivers them, Kurt Russell does such a fantastic job with that. Mm-hmm. He's he's probably the most memorable. But I also know that in my early 20s, the guys that I ran with, we would quote Big Trouble a lot. And it would really be low pan that we'd be <laughs> quoting. You know, we would go around like anytime – we'd agree with each other. We'd go, indeed, you know, just this really <laughs> high pitched squeal. And we all knew where that came from. Yeah. But I think with, with the Goonies, you have this sense of adventure, but it's not surrounded in mysticism. It's not surrounded. There's still, it's a treasure hunt. Yeah. Whereas big trouble is really just, it's a rescue. It's a battle. And when you have those kind of, supernatural elements i don't know that it can be as connective as something like like the goonies that's a good point and also i think there's someone each everyone can relate to in the goonies of that Mm -hmm. cast of characters i think there is a lot less of that like you said relatability in this movie well and i mean we could i mean we can make the argument that each character in the goonies is somewhat of a stereotype of something or some type of kid Mm. but I think that it's overblown more in big trouble that Jack Mm. Burton is clearly a stereotype of that quintessential cowboy. And Mm -hmm. that low pan is a stereotype of what we might think of Eastern mysticism as, as Americans. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think maybe that's why it's not as connected because there's too much of a stereotype or too much of, it doesn't take away my enjoyment of the movie. Mm-hmm. It just makes me appreciate it in a different way. Whereas yeah. I think, I think what Carpenter does here is he invites you to suspend your disbelief. Not that the thing couldn't or could exist, but I think that he invites fear 
in a movie like that. And I think that Big Trouble does that well. I think it invites its audience to just say, spend an hour and a half in this world and come along with these characters and have a good time, which I think Ellison was getting at. Something mm-hmm. that I picked up on in this viewing, in light of kind of where we are as a culture, particularly American culture, is this idea of offense, uh, of stereotypes, and in particular, the the sensitivity that films can be criticized for when they take a stereotype and use it to exploit. And as I was watching Big Trouble in Little China, one of the things that kept going through my head was, is this supposed to be offensive to Asians? Is this supposed to be offensive to people who live in the East? And I kind of got a little uncomfortable because then I started asking myself, am I supposed to enjoy this or what's going on here? And so I wanted to start by talking about Jack Burton. So something I didn't pick up on was that Jack Burton is sort of this representation and this is a theory, so I mean, it's not like John Carpenter made the statement. This is from somebody who kind of did his own little movie essay on on the film, but says that Jack Burton is a representation of us as an audience. And he quotes one lines where he says, what does that mean? China's here. I don't even know what the heck that means. And like the audience, he's a victim of misunderstanding the culture he is being exposed to. So I wanted to kind of pose this question to you, Francisco. One, do you agree with that assessment of Jack Burton? And if so, how does that character help us navigate through a movie like this? Well, I I agree that that's pretty, I mean, when it comes down to it, yes, uh, Jack Burton is the, the audience surrogate. We're supposed to, we, he's the device that's used so that we can all understand what what's going on for things that people are probably probably the vast majority of people are just unaware of and don't couldn't be able to really understand why a gets to B without some explanation in the middle of it. And so that, you know, we don't have just random people just saying it. it's helpful that Jack is constantly asking questions, much like Neo constantly asks questions in the matrix. It's just so that we can all all get it. Uh, Whoa. If, If that's the case, if he acts as this surrogate for us, Mm-hmm. How does that character help us to navigate through a movie like this? Well, I mean, I think that's just that. It's, he helps us so that we know that, for instance, okay, Lopan is uh, sort of not, doesn't have flesh. He's like uh, atomized, I think it was the expression used, or like a dream or something like that. Uh, or that, okay, where do, why are uh, Chinese girls with green eyes so coveted? Or all these things that, like, okay, so what? She has green eyes. Oh, well, that's rare. Oh, so so she's being um, uh, trafficked because of that, and all these things that probably just, especially if you're a kid watching this, which I don't know, I don't think I'd necessarily recommend that. But if you are, you'd be completely lost, I imagine. Uh, so I think he he's there for that purpose. And he, it's, that's the main reason we have Jack Byrne as the serve. I think that's why he's, uh, ignorant of so much of this though. I feel like he's got, he must've picked up some things cause he knows exactly how to play that game at the beginning. And he, he obviously delivers his pork chops to this place in San Francisco to Chinatown often enough to have made friends there. So I th- I think it's almost like he's 
familiar with the culture, just not this level of it, this depth of it. Well, I think he's familiar with Chinatown's culture. I don't think he's necessarily familiar with Eastern culture because Mm -hmm. the whole movie is his discovery and not even discovery, just information gathering Mm -hmm. of what the heck's going on. And one of the things that I picked up on was the fact that he's never really given a real explanation of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, and this was something else that, that I was reading about with regards to, uh, Orientalism and textuality. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into a deep, like definition. Oh, no, of I'm that, ready for that deep dive here. Let's go, Pash. <laughs> get your uh, get your scuba mask on. <laughs> no, so the the article that I was reading about talked about Orientalism mm-hmm. as the representation of Asia, uh, particularly in the Middle East, in this stereotyped way that's regarding uh, and embodying a uh, colonialist attitude. In other words, Orientalism is our understanding perception, or, perception right. understanding misunderstanding of what we perceive Eastern culture to be like. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that whether intentional or unintentional Orientalism exists in big trouble in little China and is probably the, the driving force for two thirds of the movie. Mm. And in particular, when Jack Burton, we, we look at him and he never gets a full explanation of what's going on. He asks a ton, mm-hmm. but even the explanations that are given to him are very circular. For instance, when they're down in the sewer and mm-hmm. he says, what is that? And egg goes black blood, it's the of black the blood of the earth. Yeah. Earth. And he, and he goes, what do you mean? Like oil? He goes, no, it's the black blood of the earth. Like, and he never says literally the black blood of the earth. He just keeps calling it that. The in the world of big trouble in little China, people believe stuff because that's what they were told to believe, mm-hmm. and there is no explanation needed. It's almost like the the Asian culture in this movie is okay not knowing why a girl with green eyes is necessary to appease the god for Lopan, only that it's rare. I guess that's a great explanation, but what? Because <laughs> it's we, Jade Emperor. Jade is green. <laughs> Easy peasy. Okay, we'll go with the rarity there. But then we think about Lopan. So Lopan is this dual entity. He is mm-hmm. both sort of a he's a ghost and a not so ghost. But and that's how he's explained. Mm-hmm. Like when Egg explains to Jack, this is who Lopan is. He's not alive, but he's not dead. I mean, that confuses me. I'm going what? I think what we see is consistency within the movie where we as an audience through the character of Jack, we don't get a full on understanding of this culture. Mm -hmm. We are left at the end of the movie just as ignorant as we began it. The only difference is that we've defeated the, the bad guy along with the, Precursors to Mortal Kombat characters. So, we, <laughs> so we've, got, yeah, I'm going to drop that. You knew fatality. I was going to say that. It's, yeah, fatality. But I think, and, and I wonder if this was something that was going through Carpenter's mind. Probably not. Probably he wasn't thinking about, okay, so we got to represent Asian culture well. I think it was back then enough that he was representing Asian culture and that they were actually the true heroes. He, he, he even said, uh, that he didn't want that whole intro about that where Egg Shen was saying how Jack Burns is a hero and he's so brave. 
the studio made him put that in there just so that we would know that Jack Byrne was the was the one to look for, was like the hero of the movie. Mm-hmm. Though he really isn't. Wang and the other, um, I forget the, what the name of the good guys are, but that clan of uh, Chinese fighters that mm-hmm. that Egg Shen leads. They're the real heroes of this and not so much the the Caucasian American, which is, I think, a great, I mean, that's a great display of, of multiculturalism or of um, diversity, I guess, if you want to go that route. But I, I want to. So here's here's sort of my my pushback to the article a little bit, or maybe it's more what you said. So maybe I'm pushing back on you, Patch. But Ooh, so you just me. said you said um, this doesn't really probably give a great interpret. It's almost like our Western idea of what Eastern mysticism is, and that's what this is showing. But I'm like, well, why are we supposed to get a full understanding of true Chinese mysticism? This isn't a documentary at all. This is a fun movie. Why why are we holding it to that level of uh, accountability or that level of authenticity when I don't think it's, it's setting out to be that at all? Mm -hmm. Um, and you you, for another thing I want to mention, you said that uh, like, uh, Black Bull of the Earth. What is that really? What is that really? I feel like this movie is much more, like I said earlier, it's about world building and it's kind of like, okay, that's Black Bull of the Earth. Okay. What is that? Well, that's something to discuss. That's all these things, all these elements, like the guy with the eyes or the, the ape creature or why is Lopan licking blood and trying to keep pinching the love needle into the, the girl over and over. You already did it. What's the, what's the point of continuing to do that? All these are questions that I think are great for discussion afterwards. Like, what do you think that really meant? And so I, I love that it, it generates that discussion. Uh, I guess you could see it as offensive if you feel like if you're Chinese or Asian and feel like it's not representing your culture well. I suppose there's some merit, some merit to that. However, it's not. I don't think it's saying out to be an authentic rep- representation of Chinese culture. I think it's using... Chinese culture as a backdrop, and I think that has pluses and minuses. So there you so go. You, As, so you, you do the math, guys, because it has <laughs> pluses and minuses. Well, I, I think that Big Trouble acts as a film who Lopan is as a character. I think it can be two things at once. Mm. And I think you're exactly right. I think it's a great starting point for world building. I don't think it gives us enough personally. And obviously it left itself open for a sequel, Mm -hmm. but didn't obviously happen. Well, actually actually, I'm going to say that uh, John Carpenter doesn't like to make sequels. So he just likes, he likes ambiguous endings. Well, regardless, (laughs) I, I don't believe Carpenter was, was doing what this orientalism and textuality were, were I don't think that existed intentionally. I think what he was yeah. doing was bringing about a movie that gave us that callback to the old West because of the screenplay and where it originated, but also giving us this fantasy mm-hmm. of what we might think the Orient is. And again, I think the absurdity of it really draws us away from trying to create historical accuracy from it. Mm-hmm. I think that there are elements of Asian culture 
and the mysticism that we saw that exists in this movie, I think those are those can be real and are real. I don't know enough about Asian culture to make yeah, that that claim. But I think that with the duration of the movie, with as you mentioned, the emphasis on these Asian characters becoming the heroes and Jack Burton being a, a sidekick for pretty that. much. Yeah. Well, I think his ignorance, it could represent us as Americans toward Asian culture. But I think for Carpenter, it was his way of becoming kind of the uninformed narrator, mm-hmm. uh, the unreliable mm-hmm. narrator in a sense, because yeah. he just didn't know what was going on, but he wanted to go along because he trusted his team. He said, mm-hmm. what did I just see? Hey, I want my truck back. And, I think I look at him and I don't see him as the main character. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, it starts and ends with him, but he's he's equally matched with Egg and with Wang and with all these other characters that I can't say accurately represent Asian culture, but I think at the time they were valued as being on screen representing Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe the culture itself wasn't being fully fleshed out, but the characters themselves, the actors that played them, seemed to appreciate the roles that they were in. Like I don't feel yeah. like they were being, I don't feel like they were being um, farces of is that word is that right word <laughs> of 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 their culture of who they were. I felt like they were representing the fact that we're we're the Asian faces faces that are being um, represented here and represented well. You said something really interesting just then, Patch, that it's it may not be a, a, a sort of a, a representation, an accurate representation of Chinese culture or Asian culture, but it is, it is I forget how you phrase it, something like it, it uses it, uses Asian culture well to, from a cinematic point of, or cinematic perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you said? Yeah, I was getting at the fact that I think what it represents, it does well. Okay. And sort of in light of that, I do want to point out that it, though it doesn't lift necessarily, who knows if it lifts from Chinese culture appropriately, but it does lift some from Chinese filmmaking, I think, appropriately, which is interesting. For instance, like the the high jumps of Wang and the, I think his rain is the one storm that he's fighting of them like flying through the air and, and jumping. That's something that's been in Chinese filmmaking for a long time. Even going back described in ancient Chinese novels It's called like Wuxia, I think, which okay. is, that's the name of it. I could be mispronouncing it, but so that's something that is, it's interesting that he's still taking things from Chinese storytelling and incorporating it in a movie, in this movie. So yeah. regardless of whether or not it's accurate to myth. Carpenter, yeah, Carpenter, is a, he's a storyteller, not a historian. And, and that yes. wasn't his intent. And that's something that we really do need to take with a grain of salt when we watch a movie like this is, are we offended at the fact that Asians are depicted the way they are? Well, maybe in this day and age, that's a valid argument. But that wasn't the intent of of Carpenter. Now, that's a far cry from Irving Berlin and blackface. I mean, that's definitely something that we we don't need to we don't need to see again. Yes. But I think when it comes to a movie like this, the intent of what he was doing 
was to create cinematic authenticity, not historical authenticity. I think if he had had white people dressed up as Asians and in makeup or whatever and representing that, that would have been offensive because now you're taking liberties with a visual representation of people at that point. I think it's okay to play in the, I mean, as a, as a storyteller, I think it's okay to play in the ignorance of, various cultures especially when you it's like a stand-up comedian a stand-up comic is going to call attention to the absurdities of everyday life and i think carpenter does that really well here i don't know that he would call asian culture absurd but i think he calls attention to those things that are very extreme maybe beliefs in something very mystical just like i think there are movies that amplify what they would consider the absurdity of the christian faith and well, yeah. I may not agree with that. I think it's definitely a valid storytelling uh, storytelling method. Yeah, even like for instance, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We've referenced Indiana Jones here before already. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant shooting lightning from and melting Nazi faces isn't necessarily biblical. I, mean, I don't think I, I, I I've read my Bible through once. I haven't found that in there. Uh, but so I think yeah, Hollywood does what Hollywood does. Yeah. For Hollywood. So at some point, you kind of have to forgive because it's... Yeah. I mean, I don't want to just go back to that that forward phrase, it's just a movie. But <laughs> it's just a movie. And it's not asking us to believe something. It's yeah. asking us to experience something. And, yeah. and I think that that's where it really succeeds is that we get to experience the best parts of what Carpenter's adventure takes us on mm-hmm. uh, through characters like Jack and Wang and egg and all the rest of the folks that, that, that make up this, what I think is just a great cast. Mm-hmm. And I and think that's go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know what? And if you're out there, you're listening to this right now and you were really offended by this movie, you know what? By all means go out and make an authentic Asian movie that is full of adventure. And I would love to see that and see what you can do. So, by all means, compete. All right. Well, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump right into our connecting points. And as it's our custom on the show, we want to let our guests go first. So, Francisco, why don't you give us your connecting point for Big Trouble in Little China? Well, I'll tell you, the old uh, Jack Burton on his Pork Shop Express. I I really liked, I really connected with the character of Jack Burton. He's the one I, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a gimme because he's who you're you're supposed to connect with as an audience that's completely unfamiliar with Asian culture, uh, or just unfamiliar with his movie world. But I I loved how he played an homage to John Wayne and that John Wayne. I, honestly, I want to watch some John Wayne movies. I don't think I've seen a one, but I get the sense that John Wayne was very competent as a cowboy or a a soldier in all his movies. And I think it's so fun to see that Kurt Russell's character is the antithesis of that. I mean, just total cowboy, but in a much more cowboy in the extreme, not really like thinking things through and uh, just being complete bravado. I think I connected with him so much because I think I would either be or want to be, like him in a similar situation. Uh, and like, for instance, if I were in a, a 
a move if somehow I got sucked into a movie or a video game. I, I would like to think that I'd probably be an adult version of the kid from Last Action Hero and just like I know all the rules to this. I know what's going on. I'm going to work this system and, and win, win whatever, or beat the movie or beat the game. However, if that were to happen, me being a part of the story now would probably skew the timeline and create an alternate version where the rules don't matter and I'd probably end up dead. <laughs> we but, wouldn't want that. No, we wouldn't want that. But, uh, yeah, so Jack Bright is my connecting point. That's good stuff, man. Usually we have a we have a scene or a moment, but I love the fact that you picked a character that a lot of people gravitate towards. Um, for me, I I find it difficult to find a connecting point in a comedy because connecting points generally are filled with an emotional punch of some kind. But as I tend to forget, emotions don't have to be dramatically impactful. And I love the fact that comedies have this ability to connect us emotionally in ways that you know, exhibit themselves in laughter or in like shaking our heads with just like, oh my gosh, that was so dumb. But these emotional punches can exist in high action and with lots of laughter. And the scene that really kind of represents that is this epic battle royal that takes place at the very end. And you've got like all these pairs of characters that are just going at it. And you've got Egg and Lopan using that mystical just lightsaber, whatever. I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. You know, the, you, yeah, it's definitely a, a Spaceballs moment. <laughs> but, but, but you've got, and, and you've got Lopan, you know, doing the thing with his thumbs there, you know, like he's, like, like he's, he's playing, playing a game a, or something. Like yeah. playing a video game. But then in that moment, when those things kind of together, then you have these two samurai warriors slow fighting. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, there's your Eastern mysticism. That's kind of cool. And then you've got you got Wang and Rang. Wang and Rain? That Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I think Rain. Yeah. Thunder was the big guy that sort of exploded. And Lightning <laughs> was obviously the one with Lightning. By the way, I love Lightning animations from the 80s, like Ghostbusters, this, Back to the Future. I, I, I just love animated Lightning from these movies. So much better than any CG lightning that I've seen. Anyway, continue. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. <laughs> but seeing those two flying through the air uh, in their fight, just kind of and really just posing and flipping. I mean, it was it was it was all show, and Carpenter knew that this whole ordeal was for show. And then it ends with um, Lopan quote escaping before you know Jack takes him down with his own knife or whatever, and. I just, I love that. And I look at a scene like this and it's just the epitome of what Carpenter is telling us that it's a ride, it's an adventure and you need to enjoy it for what it is, not for what you think it should be because you're going to miss the fun. And that whole sequence amplifies that satire and it's what makes Big Trouble in Little China stand out to me as, as a really enjoyable movie. Because I don't have to put it on a pedestal and say it has to meet these cinematic criteria. I can just say, it makes me laugh and that's enough. It keeps me entertained for an hour and a half and that's enough. Well, Francisco, I've enjoyed the conversation and all of its craziness and fun. And uh, if people want to keep talking to you about this movie or anything else, uh, where can they find you? Uh, They can find me, personally, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at FXRUIZX. But if you want to uh, check out what me and my uh, 
co-host Paul Powers are doing over on the Retro Rewind podcast. You can go RetroRewindPodcast.com. Links and social media stuff is up over on that site. And we have a lot of fun. Apache has joined us for several episodes. He's one of our uh, – you're a chief, right? I believe we have, so. We have ranks on our show, and he is our chief – uh, something. Oh, you're your yeoman. The yeoman. That's right. Our chief yeoman. Yo, yo, Anyways. yo. <laughs> Man. So check <laughs> us out over there or check me out, especially if you want any pixel art work done for you. I'm going to plug my services as a pixel artist. Just go to retrorewindpodcast.com slash Fiverr and I can do pixel art for you. Thanks, Francisco. And if you want to keep the conversation going with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch. S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm usually roaming around Facebook and Twitter. So next week, I will not be solo. Aaron will be back with me to talk about the highly anticipated new Star Wars anthology film, Solo, A Star Wars Story, aptly named. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Francisco, thank you for being on the show again. And until next time, stay positive and keep feeling film. Here's to the Army and Navy and the battles they have won. Here's to the Americans. Here's to the colors. Colors, the colors that never run. (laughs) May the wings of livery never lose a feather. Flap, flap, flap. (laughs)